The money will get you happiness to a point. It will not be the be all and end all of things. You're put on this earth to basically do something that not only you love, but that you're good at. Find that thing and be the best at it. And if you do that, the money will come and you will be fulfilled because that job gave you purpose. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am glad you are joining us again this week. This episode was not recorded today, the release date of this episode, that is, on November 11th. And today in Canada, it's Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day is a day where people get together to remember the people that sacrificed their lives to let us have peace. We get together to also remember those people that have gone to war and survived. On November 11th, at 11 o'clock, we pay our respects with a minute of silence. We remember the people who died and who were injured. We also feel sad for the parents of the young men who didn't come back from war. Remembrance Day means we can show respect to those who fought and died or got seriously injured when they were fighting for our country, and today we remember. Today on the show, we have Jason Pereira. So who is Jason? Well, He's a personal finance and fintech expert, a writer, podcaster, broadcaster, public speaker, industry thought leader, and so many more things. As you can see, Jason does a lot of things in our industry, and he has a big voice. When I say a big voice, I mean that Jason uses his voice and his actions to bring about change or advocate for change. And in our episode, you're going to hear Jason passionately talk about his perspectives and desires to have open banking in Canada and around the world. I respect Jason's desire to advocate for change. And you'll really notice his passion throughout this interview as we start talking about many different items within the banking systems in Canada and around the world that he feels could use some changes. During this episode, he dives into what is open banking and what implications and positive impacts can it mean on our financial lives. We really dive into the reasons why open banking is not here in Canada yet. And then Jason talks about the hurdles or the obstacles that him and many others are battling so that we can have open banking in our financial systems, which ultimately just means, well, not just means, but which means that we are going to get access and control over our data. And as you'll see in this episode, Jason is a big believer and amongst many others that we should control that data. And if that data exists, how can we allow other fintech companies to come in, use that data in a safe manner to really improve and enhance our financial lives? Jason touches on the ethics and concerns that we do need to think about as we allow AI, fintechs, and open banking enter our financial lives. And I appreciate that about Jason, is that he is looking at the other side of what risk could open banking bring. And I applaud Jason's perspective of really taking to heart the potential disadvantage or the potential concerns and the ethics we need to consider because these are important issues that we need to talk about. And that is what Jason's doing. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation with the one and only Jason Pereira. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As you can see by the bio, you do a lot of things. And I've been following you online for a number of years, and I'm always impressed at the depth it seems you do things and the impact you have. And my first question, before we get into this open banking, I want to fast forward and ask you a, a different type of question. Fast forward to the end of life. Jason is about to have a few of his last breaths and you decide to look back at your career, the work, the meaningful work that you've done, 
What would it take at that moment to say, you know what, I did it. I made a meaningful impact on the industry that I love so much. Is financial planning truly seen as a profession in the marketplace? And what I mean by that, has it elevated itself from the infancy of product sales to something that basically people go to school for and say that when they're in grade school or high school, that they want to be that, like they'll say they want to be a lawyer or doctor. And that profession is based solely and firmly around the enablement and the empowering of people's lives. Because if that's the case, the number of people who graduate from that, whether it be a very popular profession or a semi-popular profession, for everyone that graduates, that is upwards of a hundred households that they get to better the lives of. And frankly, I think at the end of the day, if that was the state of the industry, that the state of society would be far better. Wow. Thank you. And, you know, sometimes we have these aspirational goals that we haven't been working on, but the impact that you have it already, it, it's phenomenal. And I feel like you do a good job of voicing your opinions and your beliefs directly, but yet in a way that sparks conversation in a productive way, so to speak, as opposed to just getting someone to react. And I think the way you do it, you can see the work you've been doing already. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. And thank you. I'm not sure that I don't necessarily just get people to react sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I say, I, I see your comments on LinkedIn and Twitter is, is you have relevance behind it. And I feel like it's not coming from a place of I'm just trying to get people angry. Well, it's not from opinion, right? And, and too often, and I'll say, you know, in Canada, Canada's well behind the curve on this is in, in terms of, under, of understanding and appreciating the fact that there's a science to every aspect of this business. There's a science to everything. But the fact that, you know, we still rely on absurd heuristics on like things like, oh, you need X number of times your income in life insurance, or you need to basically have you know, the, the, the 4% rule for, for accumulation, all these things that are utter nonsense and just generalistic observations that really mean nothing to the individual themselves, right? We're not all specific, unique, but, you know, snowflakes, but you know, the reality is, is that we're, we can all be grouped into similarities. So not everybody's, you know, got every specific thing that's, you know, it's a, a degree different than everybody else. But the reality is actors mean nothing. An old joke about actuaries, three actuaries go hunting, one shoots two feet to the left, the other one shoots two feet to the right, the third one says we got them. You didn't hit anything, okay? And the reality is, is that you don't feel the average, you feel your personal experience. So all advice needs to be tailored around the individual. Yet this industry in a shortcut method continuously takes shortcuts. There's not even a understanding of the academic literature or, or research done behind this. And there was a little debate on Twitter today where someone questioned risk tolerance questionnaires. And my, you know, it's like, I've never seen a good one. So maybe you can point me in the right direction. Like, here's a directory of 20 on my, on my website. And they're like, well, I took it, but I think this. And I'm like, well, no, that's not how it works. Here's what it actually means. Here's the science behind it. Here's an interview with the founder. Here's, you know, and if you contemplate that really what you're looking at is not what, it's your biases that are driving your, your mm -hmm. framing, not your action, not the actual result. Right. And that's, that's the thing is that these are, and this is someone that debate was with someone who's been in the industry for 30 years. This is something that that level of thinking, that level of questioning oneself's beliefs and actions is something with evidence is something we're just not accustomed to in this industry in Canada. We're just not, we just get most of our education for product sales and do what they tell us to. Yeah. There's a greater system issue here to your point, but I like your words of, you know, it's not just an opinion you're saying and rooted in science. And I feel like that's probably why your work resonates with me. So I want to talk about open banking today. You're doing some wonderful work in the open banking. You had a really good five-part series where you explored open banking internationally, Canadian, American. So the intent of today's conversation, though, will be the impact consumers, like you and I as banking consumers, what impact open banking can have on us. But before we get there, I think it's important that we understand the basic functions of open banking as it's a relatively new term. There's been different definitions. And I think this gives listeners a baseline to chart their own perspective and how they can see how open banking could impact them. So provide us the fundamentals of open banking. So let me actually zoom out by, by you know, I'll zoom out slowly. So open banking, you get this concept called open finance, you have a bigger concept called open data. Got to focus on open data. And the, the concept of open data is that frankly, we as consumers, basically, or just people produce all kinds of data, right? And we've seen that this is the case because we've seen companies like Google become multi-billion dollar companies off of the harvesting of the data that we leave behind in the wake of our, of our digital existence, right? So we produce data, whether it be us going shopping, Googling, whatever else it is, right? And frankly, everybody else to date has monetized off that. And we've gotten some free stuff in return, but we haven't participated in that as society. 
Also, that information is valuable. The stuff that we put out there in the universe is valuable, not just to them, but to us and to other companies we choose to do business with. So at its core, open data is frankly rested in the belief that the consumer or the individual who creates the data has a right to it. Not just a right to it, but a right to it in an easily digestible and transferable and storable way, right? Not something that's painful because at the end of the day, it should be in our hands as individuals who create this data to choose to share it, to monetize it, to do whatever it is that we want with it, as opposed to large technology institutions that basically do this. Now, zoom down to open banking. What open banking is, is it's the exact same dynamic where we're basically saying that, hey, that information that you have, that your customers have created, they have a right to that, right? And frankly, in Canada, we already have this thing called PEPIDA, which does give us access to our data. However, it doesn't specify the how, and that's the critical flaw. It says we have a right. And it's funny because many people in banking often forget PEPIDA is a thing and that we have a right because I keep on reminding them that we already have a right. We're just arguing about the method now. And basically, the wording around those rights need to be strengthened for sure. But basically what it should be is in an ideal world, I have some sort of digital tool or whatever it is for the storage of my data for my profile. And I'm able to tap into the open to that resource, a pool of data and suck it up into my own consumption or to direct it to a third party vendor. If I want to provide my banking history to an online lender so they can underwrite me, it should be a button click. It should not be a painful process because here's the key. That data was a moat for these institutions. That was how they kept you there because it was easier for them to underwrite you because they understood you better than they, than others. In fact, and they play this game of chicken where they won't accept data unless it's their data because it's this kind of like steering contest. If you start accepting everybody else's data, then the problem is, is that, you know, we, we start letting people move between banks. So this is an artificial friction. So really open banking at Simplus is about you being able to access and direct your financial data in a clean, simple, useful way. Right now, it's, hey, we can go in and I can download an Excel file or I can download the documents or I can do a data scrape, which you really hate versus just give me an API so another technology company can write a secure piece of code to tie into it securely. So as I say, when it comes to open banking right now, it is on the current paradigm. It's basically, oh, it's yours, but you have to crawl over glass to get it, which is a terrible consumer experience. So that's core is what it's about. It's about free and unfettered and enabled access to information that you as a consumer create. So th that word you you used a couple times, the right. And so that's what I'm really hearing this open banking is we have the right to our information. The banks shouldn't have this moat of the right to this information, but this API, maybe touch on the API, what it stands for. And like, cause for, for those who aren't familiar with APIs, how, how does this API provide information to third parties? And maybe touch on going through people's minds and be like, whoa, this is, this might be dangerous or not safe. Well, before people say they're not safe, I want them to answer a question of, do they have a randomly sequenced password or are they using their kids' birthdays, right? In reality, the vast majority of hacks that occur are human errors, not technological ones. Security is always the first thing people throw out. And I say, okay, great. How many passwords do you have written down on a stick it now, right? So, you know, why don't you raise your standard before you criticize? So here, here's how it works. API stands for Application Protocol Interface. And what it is, is just a fancy term for saying, hey, we have a site, we have this ability for other companies to tie their software into our database and our data and securely verify that they have permission to do so and basically demand whatever data it is that we, that they're looking for in a secure encrypted manner. So essentially this is all about doing so in a way that is easily accessible, secure, and scalable. Whereas today, if you use any software that typically is able to access banking data or other things like that, what's typically being done is something called a screen scrape. So what happens is your password is actually being stored on a third party provider who then basically uses that to pretend to be you when they log into your website, into the website, and then they capture pictures, essentially, well, lack of a better term, capture pictures of the screen and translate it in the, in the data. It's not quite that way, but it's, it's, it's kind of like that. And that is a far less secure way to do things because your password's stored by a third party. Also, it's easy to break. You know, if, if a vendor moves a single cell to one other side, suddenly the entire thing doesn't work properly. So it's not a great experience across the board. It's not the most secure experience. And it's not one that enables technology to move things back and forth. So that's the problem with the current state. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. And I, I've heard people 
explain like the APIs is almost like a plumbing system where right now there's one pipe that's shooting out the water and you got to bring that water to the other institution where you can put in different plumbing pipes? Yeah. Well, everybody's using an API. Everyone who's online is using an API at some point. You just don't realize, right? Mm. So for example, sign in with Google or sign in right. with Facebook. That is enabled securely through APIs. And all it is, is a bunch of code talking. It's basically, it's a, it's a rule book. It's like, you want to talk to my system? This is how you do it. This is how you request authorization. This is how you request this kind of data. This is how you push an instruction. And it's basically an instruction manual for it. So think of it as, it's, it's basically a language translation, right? And then what happens is, is that if I'm a vendor, right? I've got my technology. I've got their, someone else's technology. I want them to talk to each other. They're not written to talk to each other. They have an API. I have an API. I write a piece of code that sits in the middle that basically plays air traffic controller and points things in the right direction. And, and before we talk about the impact of that model, I, you touch on screen scraping and credential sharing. For people who might have just not caught that, can you talk about the privacy issues of that already? And I believe here in Canada that we're already violating certain banking agreements. Yeah, it's a BS claim. They'll tell you why. So the banks will tell you right now that if you share any of your passwords with a third-party provider to, to pull data, that you are in violation of your fraud protection. Here's the problem. Guess who also adds offers this technology to their consumers? The banks? Yep. It is a completely laughable and undefendable position to simultaneously tell people that you're avoiding their fraud protection for, for sharing a password, but then encourage the exact same action. So this is one of these things that they play. They use it as a scare tactic, right? But frankly, no one in technology pays any serious credence to it because the reality is they know it's undefendable. If, if this was the case, the banks would have taken Mint.com and anyone else who's doing this to court a long time ago, but they don't because they want the scare tactic there to make people say, and I've seen it happen with advisors or other clients like, well, you know what? I'm not willing to do that. It's like, okay, fine. But the reality is that's never going to be defended. It's never going to be used because if they do that, they open. Here's the real danger. Imagine that they actually took that to court and they lost. They stand the chance of having the courts settle a critical open banking component for them without their lobbying to be able to intercept it, right? There is no way they want that going to court ever. I want to talk about the impact for consumers, but I'm just so curious. The tone in your voice, you are just like, I could hear the passion you have for advocating for open banking. Where, where did that come from for you? I think it comes from the fact that as a consumer, I want to be able to do what I want to do with my own information, right? So I mean, that's one of the core things. And also living in Canada under the tyrannical oligopoly that is the big five, and if you, if you laugh and you don't understand, you know, what's so bad about that, you know, come have a drink with me while I tell you about all the vulgar things that they do. We do not have consumer protection laws like the Americans do. We do not have antitrust laws like the Americans do. These companies openly collude, openly collude in ways that would get them hauled in front of U.S. subcommittee hearings to basically have themselves land-based and possibly broken up. But here in Canada, it's completely kosher. And they exercise so much influence over the, through lobbying over the decisions being made that Canada ends up looking like a jerk on so many fronts. And two simple recent examples. Canada was the only major Western country that did not allow its fintech community to help in COVID relief. If they had been, they would, the relief would have gone out a lot faster. Secondly, that is a massive, massive, ridiculous opportunity for basically supporting the, the, the fintech community because guess what? All of that relief came with fees for being able to put it out there. And I know very successful entrepreneurs who founded some of these companies, who basically have funded many of these companies who were there lobbying with finance saying like, are you kidding? We can do this. And like, no, no, KYC, AML, all this other stuff. Like, but they're actually better at KYC, AML than the banks are. They managed to convince finance that this was a bad idea. And because of it, huge missed opportunity. The second one, this is hilarious, Revolut the largest challenger bank in the world, 42-ish countries they operate in. And last year they said Canada, said Canada goodbye, goodbye. And why is that? Because the banks did everything they could to get in their way and prevent them from actually being able to operate here. And simultaneously, they had no roadmap for where open banking was going. So they said, you guys are a joke. We'll come back when you sort yourselves out and you stop letting five companies run your country, right? So that's part of the story. Part of the story is people don't see the damage that is done by large financial institutions in this country. We pay some, we pay high fees for very little in return, quite honestly, that in institutions that are openly crushing competition. And frankly, and only that, it leads to all kinds of underserviced communities. You know what the most surprising underserviced community is? And this is hilarious. Small business. If you're a small business owner, you know how painful it is to deal with the bank. Until you get to a certain threshold, which now, which that number just keeps on getting bigger and bigger in terms of revenue, and you get to commercial banking, 
no one even stops to understand your business. All they do is hit a couple of checkboxes and oh, oh, that checkbox isn't hit goodbye, right? Like it is preposterous. Meanwhile, there is a subculture of very passionate fintech entrepreneurs in this country who are trying to basically create win-win scenarios for advisors and consumers who have very client-centric focuses and know where the gaps are. And they are out there trying to build these companies. But meanwhile, the roadblocks thrown up by these major institutions on data that is actually ours is damaging them deeply. It is preventing their growth. And essentially, the banks are just trying to play defense to kill the, the fintech industry in the cradle. So frankly, when you see what they're, what they do in the lobbying side and you see what the other side is trying to accomplish in terms of the betterment of, of their market, I mean, look at Wealth Simple in this country and the success they've had with the millennial demographic, a demographic no one wanted to touch because, hey, they have no money. You know, now you talk to a millennial, ask them to name a financial institution or a place to invest and Wealth Simple is the first thing that comes out of their mouth, right? And, you know, whether you can debate whether they should be trading crypto or their own stuff, whether they should just be using the robo, that's, that's besides the point. They're servicing the needs of what the community wants, right? So. The reality is when I see the damage done there and I see the people trying to fix it and I see the, the uncompetitive nature with which they are blocked, I get angry. Frankly, it's something that should anger all of us. I, I really appreciate that answer. And as you're explaining that, it makes me think of two cash co stores down the street that when you talk about the underbanked or unbanked or people who can't have products or services, as you're talking, I'm like, the banks are complicit in knowing that these people are going there because they don't have an option to go to the bank and they're okay with it because they don't create something for them. And yeah, just something that we don't actually sit down and think about is the damage that they're actually having when really banking is like a, it should be a right that we have, or it's, it's a utility function. I deposit money, I get well, money but, back. But here's the thing. We have, we have seated to a small number of institutions, the right to handle this, right? We've ceded that to an oligopoly, which let's not forget, these, these companies tried to consolidate down into three back in the 90s, okay? If they had their way, there'd probably be one, right? That's the reality of it. And we have ceded this, which is, I'm sorry, basic economics. If you don't have competition, you pay higher prices. And we see that everywhere. And they do everything they can to crush competition. And like, I'll give you an even simpler example of the, of, the, of the problem with banking, right? So a lot of people with very little means, their first exposure to any kind of investing is typically at the bank, right? There's more that there's a certain amount of money in the bank account. We should really move that over, right? But here's the problem. I've even had this argument with friends of mine who are in banking, but you know, recently there's this new regulation that's basically going to raise the bar for knowing your product. Now think about the, how novel that is. The regulation says you have to know who your consumer is, to know what the product is, and you have to make a suitable recommendation. Wow, you need a regulation to tell you to do what you're supposed to be doing in the first place? What a low bar. But the banks threw up their hands and said, oh, no, this is ridiculous. This is going to cost us too much. So now we're going to get rid of all third-party mutual funds in, in the bank. We're just going to sell our own stuff. Why? Because on the third-party mutual funds, they're making maybe 1% a year. Now they're going to make mar manufacturer margin called that maybe 1.5%, whatever it is, right? So first off, the excuse is BS, right? Because that standard has to be hit at all levels of the bank. So you're telling me it can't be done at the branch? Come on, give me a break. Secondly, it's clearly a profit take. And then lastly, they actually had the audacity of saying things like, well, it only represents like 15% of what we sell at the branches anyway. My response was, well, that you just confessed to a crime. You just confessed to the fact that you incentivized all of your employees who specifically push your own product, which is not necessarily in the best interest of the client. And, and the big deal around this is that no one institution can claim it to have the lowest cost passive investment or the best performing investment in every sector of the economy. It's just not possible. No, there's no perfect investment shop out there, right? So when you're saying that, you're saying that the, when you're saying it doesn't matter, which is what they're saying, it doesn't matter because we have to make, you know, what, what's happening is that you're saying that the client outcome doesn't matter. And that's wrong. But they have this attitude, like we're doing this great work for these small people who wouldn't get investment advice anywhere. But the only way to make that happen is for them to pay high fees, which reduces the net benefit. But also it's not enough money that we can train people. So we're going to have some barely trained 20 something basically do it because otherwise it would cost thousands of dollars more. So it's like, I'm sitting here going like, so where's the net benefit? Like, where is the net benefit of, okay, congratulations, you got them into investing. But now you're also extracting this massive toll with advice that's probably wrong. So... Do you have something that shows it's a net positive? Because I don't think you do. As opposed to just stepping back, stepping back from the entire situation and saying, okay, hold on, is this, is this really how we're doing things? Is it really a net benefit? How do we create something different that's actually a net benefit? Instead, it's the same old business model pushed down on, on consumers. I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad that we can have this discussion to make people realize because, yeah, they've been such a part of our our banking culture that sometimes we don't step back to reflect on what's happening. 
And you make me think of uh, I, one of my guests, uh, Dr. James Audison. He's a philosopher and economist. And he wrote a book, The Seven Deadly Economic Sins. And he talks about how for the longest time, we, we looked at zero-sum terms. So which that means is one person wins the race, one person loses. The bank wins, the client loses. And he challenges people to look at the cooperations as what he calls are not zero-sum transactions. And, and you used another word that he talks about is extraction. It's like so many times people gain wealth by extraction. So let's go to open banking because I can feel my um, blood pressure going up, which is not a bad thing. But also let's start painting pictures of why people should be riled up. And then what is a potential solution? So how, if at all, can open banking create this cooperation, as James said? And what, what does that look like? So here's what it comes down to. You created data. You created information. That information is valuable to you in transacting with another company. Should you have access to it in a straightforward, simplified, accessible way or a painful manner? You mean not downloading PDFs and trying to submit it to the bank and yeah. get a mortgage or whatever? Bingo. Mortgage. Perfect example. How painful is it to apply for a mortgage in this country, right? All of this stuff sits in data warehouses all over the place. In theory, all that would have to happen is for a mortgage broker to have a site where you could securely connect your bank account, your payroll system, you know, your investment accounts, all of that into one profile picture. Or if you had a central hub where all this is, where all, where all this goes to, to be able just to authorize them to that one point of contact. This is already being done in other places. I have a friend who runs an alternative lending or small businesses, period. And I went through the song and dance of trying to get this term loan from a bank. And it took three months and four rounds of requests for information, which basically amounted to, you know, a full physical over every crevice of the business. It was unbelievable. And there was always, there was always something else they had to see, even though like I thought I gave them everything, all to get to no. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And, and you know what the, the funniest part, their solution was, well, I'm trying to think about, let, let's think of an alternative. What if you gave us the $200,000 you have sitting in cash and we'll give you a $200,000 loan? I'm like, well, what's that $200,000 gonna do sitting in a GIC? I'm like, so you're going to give me 200,000 on top of the 200 I'm giving you? No, no, it's just a $200,000 line of credit. I'm like, so let me get this straight. You want me to give you money to lock it at 1% while I simultaneously then borrow from you at like three to 5%. Yes. What idiot takes that offer, right? Like this is legitimately how they operate. Meanwhile, I go to my friends, like so I had him as a backup. I go, okay, let's go through this. Set up, my, sign up for his website. Connected my accounting software, connected my bank account, had an offer back in 24 hours. So think about the difference in experience there, right? Then the follow-up where they required additional information, they required all of the stuff that I think is essential, not a problem. One round of requests, done. They had their stuff done. Most of it digitally transmitted and digitally requested. No problem, right? The entire thing was placed within, from start to finish in less than two months. Three months of study to get to know 24 hours to get to yes, less than, less than two months to get the entire thing done start to finish, right? Think about that experience in comparison. The reality is they're not going to evolve. They're not going to do this sort of stuff, right? There's no incentive. The incentive is just basically to continue the thing. Everybody's trying to keep their job. Everybody's got their, their little fight. No one gets promoted to the bank by rocking the boat and being the most innovative leader out there. They just want to make sure that they hit their dividend growth targets and that's the end of it. And frankly, the multi-year boom cycle we've had in Canada and, and the lack of a big hit in, in the face in, in 2008, the reality, I think that's masked a lot of problems. It's masked a lot of problems because it's been easier to hit those targets. And I think the banks have done some things that look very benevolent on the front, on the face of it. But frankly, the second we hit a real recession, that stuff disappears. The second they got to make sure they hit their target, they're going to start slashing and burning any of the nice stuff pretty quickly. Yeah. You, you talk about these small to medium business enterprises that were underserved earlier and your, your client is an example of trying to get this loan. I'm just thinking to some degree, the fabric of our society is built on these small independent business owners that we all like to go to restaurants or go get whatever service they provide. Even think about the psychological warfare to some degree of like opening up a business, taking this risk and then having to deal with this fragmented system and three months to then be saying no. Well, think about this. Think about the fact that most of the loans that are issued to small businesses are backed by BDC, so they're backstopped by the government. Just like any high-ratio mortgage is backstopped by the government through CMHC. So the reality is that we're backstopping all of their real risk. I literally had an underwriter at the bank basically tell me that, frankly, banks aren't really interested in small business lending or small businesses. Why? Because the 
KYC AML, okay, the know your client uh, anti-money laundering responsibilities, it's pretty straightforward and simple on the, on the, when it comes to people. It's more complex when it comes to businesses, you get into share owners and all this other stuff and see how it's owned. That raises the bar for how much time and effort and money it costs to do it. And they're just not interested because they don't think the money's there. But the irony is, is that when you're a successful business owner, then they want you there. So they just don't want you until you're successful and then they'll try. But, you know, think about how ridiculous and counter. I basically said to her, so let me get this straight. You do realize that if you actually enable these companies, you have more business in the future through successful businesses. And they're like, yeah, but they're not interested. There's companies out there who want that business. But the problem yeah. is they're tapped by the fact that we can't get our information that we have a right to, despite the fact more than one executive, more on multiple occasions, has basically said, well, that's our data. And my response is, go read Leaping at Pepita and tell me it's your data, right? Like it is, it is already there. The only issue, we're just discussing how now, and you're a jerk about it. The other word that comes to my mind is just manipulation. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it was a well-known kind of phenomenon in the U.S. about no-fee bank accounts. They're really there as traps for the poor because essentially, you know, they attract a lot of people without money because they don't want to pay for those services. But then the, the NSF fees are like $35. They're engineered to be no fee because if you trigger, they know on average, you get to trigger it a certain number of times and that actually results in more cost than the fee itself. Whereas you could have had, you could have paid a fee every month, avoided the NSF charges, but they don't tell you that. They exist for one reason. They're a publicly traded company. They're all publicly traded companies. They exist for one reason and one reason only, and it's profit and to grow their dividend because that's what people want them for. You know, this is the, this is the Stockholm syndrome of Canada, right? We, we Canadians typically hate one bank, or complain about them all. Maybe they love one, which I don't understand because it's all different flavors of vanilla. They line up to give them money, but they won't look at the alternatives because they think the alternatives aren't safe when the alternatives have the same level of protection as the banks do themselves. And then they complain about them, but then they buy bank stocks to get dividends because, hey, that's great, right? You know, simple example. I got this debate over Twitter when EQ Bank was still paying 1.5% as an everyday high interest savings account. RBC still has the audacity of calling a high interest savings account when the interest rate is 0.05% per year, right? Like this is, of course, post-COVID. So listen, you're getting quite literally, you are getting 0.05% per year. For $10, you're getting, what is that? Five, whatever works out to be. But the point is, is that it's a joke, right? And I'm sitting here going like, and this was, a, this is where I basically said, look, Canadian consumers have to take responsibility for the fact that we live in an oligopoly of banking systems, the banks and telecoms. Why? Because when the alternatives come out, we find some sort of flaw or we feel it's not secure enough. We all complain we want alternatives, but we never do. And basically, in an efficient market, RBC would have no money and EQ Bank would have all the money, right? Like, that's how it would work, right? But this is the tool they extract, right? And I had all kinds of people saying, well, it's not as safe. And it's just like, it's the same. They have CMHC protection, just like they do. You know, it's not, it's not size that protects consumers, it is regulation that protects consumers. And we are all, as an independent financial planner and advisor, I know this as well as anyone. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with the biggest brokerage firm in the country. I have the same protections. In fact, here's a funny one for you. I actually have Arizona emissions protection. The banks don't have that. They don't have that. They swallow that risk themselves and just try to bury you with lawyers. Whereas I actually have insurance that they actually take care of you if something goes wrong. Also, you have to look at their messaging. I kid you not. Have you seen in the last couple of years how these banks, when they put in these TV screens now, they, they feel so they play up the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation like ads. Like they have now full screen ads, CDIC. It used to be that CIC was a sticker and a pamphlet. And now it's this big thing. Why? Because what are they trying to tell you? We are safe. What is the alternative? But by extension, what's the alternative? The alternative is not safe, right? So that's what they're trying to get away. So this is safe, but the outside world is not. So there's a lot of subliminal stuff going on there. Call me conspiracy theorist if you want in that regard, but frankly, I mean, I see it. Otherwise, like, why am I putting a full page, a full screen ad of a program that every deposit account in the country has access to as if it's a differentiator? It's like basically saying, oh, look, we exist, right? That's not a, that's not a marketing. You're trying to accomplish something with that marketing ploy. So anyway, and, and this, again, going back to open banking, why is this important? Because how do we move away from this oligopoly? How do individual consumers and passionate individuals about changing the financial relationship we have with money into a win-win scenario, not just a win-lose scenario? How does that happen? Well, we need to help them scale. How do we help them scale? Access to data is a crucial part of that. I, I really enjoy this. And I enjoy your critiques of the bank. It, it, that's how innovation does happen, through critiques and observations. 
Uh, I found online, I was doing some research, the Finance Innovation Lab, they, they created this consumer manifesto for open banking. And I want to read the opening line and then get a couple of thoughts of yours in terms of what does this look like? And I think I'm going to repeat that opening statement. <laughs> open banking should be a force for good, which promotes financial inclusion and widens access to more useful, affordable, and understandable financial services for everyone. I have a follow-up question, unless you want to say something just to that manifesto right off the get-go. I think it absolutely can be all those things, right? Like, here's the thing, and this is something I rail against in my own industry quite frequently, is that we often look at what is possible through the model of the past. Who can be serviced? Who is profitable to service? How can we service them? Through the model of how we did things before. You know, I lose my mind arguing this over deferred sales charges and financial investment products, right? So these are uh, service charges on mutual funds where the client would pay nothing up front, but the advisor would get five points, but then it would be a seven-year redemption schedule that started at 7%. And these things were abused like no tomorrow. But everybody always said, well, you can't service small clients without it. And my response was, what else have you tried? And no one ever had an answer. No one ever had an answer. So we're, we're literally, by that, right? And the reality of, of servicing people in almost every aspect of any business, forget just finance, every business, right, is about getting the unit economics down to a point where even the smallest person is profitable. So therefore, you can offer it not as charity, but as something that you can have a cohesive relationship with where now there is a dual incentive. You get something of value, I get profit, right? That's capitalism. That works. The perfect example right now going on is space travel. Everybody's complaining about these billionaires going to space, right? And selling space tourism to really rich people. Well, how do you think they get it down to the point where someone who saves up and wants to go on a vac use their vacation money to go to space for a day can do that? This is what happens. Air travel used to be a luxury of the rich back in the day. Now, you know, maybe not in Canada because flights are expensive here, but you know, you can fly Ryanair in the UK for anywhere for like less than 20 quid, right? So the reality is this is, it's all about you in economics. And these institutions are not incentivized to basically do that. They're incentivized, again, to keep things the way they are, let someone else take the risk, and maybe we'll buy them out if, that, if it works out. But everybody else is looking to challenge the unit economics. And that is how you create inclusion. You create inclusion by making it in two ways. A, dropping the point of entry down to the bare minimum. Well, simple. If I commend on this. Minimum account size, $1. $1. There's no excuse. There's no friction on that anymore. The other piece of it is communities who are underserviced because of certain special needs or beliefs, right? If a small community can be serviced properly because it's a very low overhead, then you increase inclusion, right? I don't care if you are, you know, I'll just put a bunch of red, like a Muslim farmer living in a small rural region who needs access to capital to farm something that's specific to your religion. I don't know, whatever it is, like there's a tiny cohort, but you know what? If we can drop the cost of distribution low enough, you will actually have niche businesses emerge to service all these subcultures and all these sub-niches, right? Great example of this is XYPN in the US. And I'm a big fan of Michael Kisses and Alan Moore and what they do down there. And XYPN practice, you know, an advisor can set up an RIA for like less than 20 grand and it's like 400 bucks for their platform a month. The bottom line is the cost of operation has been brought down to the bare minimum they can bring it down to and give you all the tools that you need and the community to help you learn. And by doing that, they've allowed advisors to start taking on clients using retainer-based models and, and low levels of assets, servicing an entire cohort that was basically ignored for a large part and making and creating very profitable businesses. But the most successful businesses in that group, and actually and across all data in the US, most successful advisory practices are the ones that focuses on, focus on niches. When you try to speak to everyone, you speak to, not, to no one. But when you truly understand the needs and challenges of a niche, you can be the irreplaceable value proposition to them. And that is not just true of financial advisors. It is also true of fintechs and any other business out there. If you can actually, if you can drop, if you can make it profitable at a very low cost of entry and you can get your cost down to that level, the sky's the limit because then you can just find something that wasn't profitable for another company and do that. And that's, that's you know, in part, that's disruption theory. That's part of what Clayton Christensen taught us is this the things that basically do not, the, the groups that aren't profitable that lead to the disruption in the companies with traditional lines of businesses. Oh, thank you for that. So many good examples of speaking to that manifesto. I can't remember if we were, we were recording or not, but you talked about heuristics or biases. And as we know, there's a lot of descriptive books and resources out there that describe why we're flawed and why we don't make rational economic decisions or personal finance decisions, which is fine. 
How do you see open banking, which can open the door for fintech companies, can help us become more prescriptive, so to speak, in reducing, for example, we know automatic saving enrollments really help people. But are there other ways that you've been starting to hear or see how we can stop just telling people how deficient we are in making decisions and implementing technology that perhaps can help us just live our lives and enjoy the things that we don't have to put all this cognitive burden and knowing all the different things about money that we're inherently bad at doing? A couple of I'll key points there. First off, I'm going to correct you on something a little bit here, and that's regarding people being was irrational. Yeah. The reality is they are being, what we consider irrational, what science is irrational, is often people behaving rational within the framework of their world, right? Their understanding of the universe, their fact patterns. So I always say to people, like, don't just assume that they're being irrational. Try to understand where they came from on this. Because if you understand where they came from on this, you'll understand what led them to that conclusion. Now, maybe there's a flaw in that thinking that you can you can nudge towards and, and get them to see differently. But to think that we're all just randomly, crazily doing stuff, like, no, there's a reason that we're all like ourselves. That's it. I appreciate that because I 100% agree. And a lot of our conversations with prior guests have been on what is our story that leads us to this. So thank you for pointing that out. Yep. So on the other side of it, so here's the thing. What's the most palatable value proposition? Do this or let me do this for you. Let me do this for you. Exactly. And so much of what we say is the good advice is that the bottom line is if you introduce friction into the people's lives, what do you think's going to happen? I despise consumer experiences where oh yeah, I'm just going to turn it back to the client, right? Like I have this kind of rule in my practice wherever possible, like I'm, it's going to be difficult for me to gather information. I'm trying to make it easier for them, but it's always going to be hard. And I apologize in advance for it. But once I have that, I never want to go back unless I absolutely have to. So everything needs to be nailed the first time, right? Everything needs to be nailed down the first time. So I'm not having to go back. Everything that we can't execute on our end that you know could be executed by them, but instead I can handle it. I'm going to do that, right? Because at the end of the day, left our own devices, like, we have too much going on, right? Like who says that they have, oh no, I have way too much time on my hands and I wish I had more work, right? Even the laziest people who have too much time on their hands aren't going to say that. So the first thing is, is that I think the digital side of things, the potential is for the stuff to get done for you, right? It's, that's the first thing. Now, I do think that there is a dark side to where this can all go. And that's because, you know, you give an example of, you know, automated savings and everything else. So a lot of this stuff will, and you're familiar with, I'm sure your audience is familiar with Nudge and, and Richard Thaler and his work, but a lot of this stuff is basically going to come down to, uh, in the future, behavioral nudging and let's call it behavioral modification through nudging, right? So, hey, you should really do this. Boom. Okay. I'll, actually, I'll click to say yes. Or, you know, simple, the simplest example I would say is, hey, that bonus check you were expecting came in. This was already earmarked for your RSP. Click here to transfer it. Boom. Right? Like that sort of stuff, right? The thing that needs authorization. So there's a lot of very good positives that can happen there, but there's also the danger for nudging that is not in the best interest of the consumer, right? So how is that solved for? I don't know. I think that there's a possibility that the market in itself will figure this stuff out to some degree. I also think that given there's going to be so many of these little fractured companies and this kind of disassembling, great unbundling of banking services going on, that what's probably going to happen is that we're going to start to have a layer above that which is a intelligent, artificial intelligence driven engine that understands you and can direct all these sub offerings in a more effective manner. And again, comes down to, well, who's writing the AI? Is it to your benefit? Is it not? That's where I think a lot of this goes back to AI ethicism. There's a lot of things going on there. So, you know, the financial world is a part of the general world. These are the same questions technologists and other people are asking themselves. So I think that it unlocks the enormous potential for far better outcome by basically doing the stuff that we don't want to be bothered to do. And it's stuff that, you know, frankly, if there was a button I could push to exercise for me, so I had to do it for myself, I would do it. But the reality is that doesn't exist. But in finance, that opportunity is possible if we create the system for it. But again, we got to be careful at the end of the day as to who's pushing us in what direction and why and what, and making sure incentives are aligned. I'm really glad you bring up that, that other side to this whole conversation. And I think the, the, yeah, the ethics of money is a very interesting place to explore. And while we are creating AI or other decision-making tools, it's a question who's making those decisions. Like, I mean, we've watched Social Dilemma and the unintended consequences of what those tech companies have created. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Most people don't realize this, but the most robust data set that artificial intelligence gets tested across. And I mean, artificial intelligence, I mean, everything from spam blockers to actual AI engines is actually, believe it or not, the emails of Enron employees. 
when Enron went down and this stuff became state's evidence, it became public record. And it was this giant database of intercompany data of Fortune 500 company sized intercompany emails and everything from people's relationships to corporate affairs became public. And, you know, that's, if there's one thing that AI people love, it's a large data set. So sure enough, a lot of artificial intelligence has been tested against this and refined against this. But here's the problem. That cohort of society represented a cohort of certain levels of education, certain ethnic backgrounds, certain regions, certain colors, you name it. And it really is looking, a lot of that AI has been trained through the lens of those people and not society at large, right? So, you know, we can talk about the ethicism of all this. There's some very real concerns that come from this because this is one of those things I also say too. I'm not worried about technology fully replacing financial planners or advisors because the reality is the ability to capture an individual fully, don't care how much data you have, is pretty slim to none. Like you're never going to fully capture the organic mass that is a human brain, at least not for quite a while, touch wood. But, you know, for example, I always say this stuff like, okay, the artificial intelligence financial planning software told me they should do X. Well, guess what? I know that they're vehemently opposed to the ethics of X or the V or the religion would not accommodate for that. And, or maybe their sect of that religion did not accommodate for that. Right. So there's, there's things that, that are never going to match up with the efficient engine spitting it out and the human reality. So, you know, I think that the only way to bridge that is going to be with people in the middle who are going to basically keep, keep that gate for, for quite a while. Yeah. And. Money's so emotional and I just don't think that that advisor will ever leave because people, they want to have a conversation. We can trust AI, but I think at the same time, we have that underlying feeling to be seen, heard and met when we're talking about money and AI might not do that. That viewpoint is heavily dependent upon where the person I'm talking to is, is located. If they were located in the valley, forget it. Like there is no human being that cannot replace, be replaced ever in the valley. True. Even though robo-advisors like, like Wellfront and Betterment did knock out the entire market like people thought they would, you know, the reality is there's always the need for a human relationship to some degree. Uh, maybe I will trust it to drive my car at some point soon because, hey, most human beings suck at driving, but I think human beings don't suck at connecting. And I think that's the difference. I agree. In terms of financial literacy, this has been a thing that people tout often. Sometimes I think it's a marketing yeah. technique. They have good intentions. Does it work? Well, research has mixed messages. Do you think, I mean, if it worked, we wouldn't be getting more and more in debt and money would stress out even more? Well, there's been studies that show that if you don't use it within 24, 36 months of learning it, it's like you didn't learn it at all. So like there's this concept of just-in-time financial literacy or education. Yeah. Where do you see, if at all, a fit between technology, we'll just call it, because of open banking and providing a newer version of financial, whatever you want to call it? So, so here's what I'll say. I'm a big fan of the quote. I think it was uh, the CEO, the founder of Betterment, where he said, financial literacy is BS. What you really need is constructive design. And when you think about that, there's something called a dark pattern in programming, which is where you, you design a program to nudge people to do the thing you want and to not necessarily the thing that's best for them, right? And I consider the entire banking system and financial system in Canada to be nothing but a series of dark patterns everywhere, whether it be intentional or not, at least to sub out optimal outcomes all over the place. But when you think about, and again, this goes back to ethics, if someone basically opens up a mortgage banking app, let's just say they might get a new mortgage, they open up their mortgage app, and this is a digital mortgage broker that is supposed to be non-biased and, and basically surveys the entire market, right? That mortgage broker has an opportunity to basically design their product in such a manner to be as frictionless, providing the information where necessary or where optional. I won't even say provide a just in time to say, oh, hey, this is, you got to answer this question. This is how you should answer the question based on all this. No, it shouldn't be that. It should be like little I. You want to learn more? Fine. Click on to learn more. But otherwise, the question itself should guide you to the optimal, the optimal way you do things, right? And anyone who's ever studied how surveys are done knows that surveys are incredible. The wording on a survey is incredibly powerful. And the way you change and design words is incredibly powerful. And I think, I think that the technology companies providing this have the opportunity to design intelligently the process flows as to basically put these words and these actions in such a manner that it leads to positive design that gets you to the optimal answer in the most, in the highest probable number of cases and end up with the result that is the most positive, non-biased answer for people. So it's not that you have to educate them on everything to do with mortgages. You have to make making the right decision on mortgages easy, right? So that it's easy to make the wrong decision on something in finance, right? Especially when it comes to investing. It is so easy to make the wrong decision on something like that because the entire industry just says, here, here's access to everything, knock yourself out. 
when actually the reality is that is the easiest way to get it right when it comes to investing, right? So literacy is important. What's more important is just making it easy because all you're saying is great. Here's more cognitive burden. Here's more education. Like, you know, there's this real attitude about being your own advocate in banking and or investing and in health and all this other stuff. Look, I'll go with the anti-vaxxers here. None of y'all are trained as immunologists, right? Like, so, so you do your own research and do your own reading. You don't have the base level understanding of what medicine is in order to read a paper and actually discern its true meaning and whether its validity is not is there or not, right? That's the reality of it. Now, you know, come to whatever conclusion you want, but that's what it comes down to is do I even have the training to make sense of what, of what I'm reading? That baseline knowledge to interpret the information is so critical that is not easily, you can't read that one on the toilet. So we opened up with the business one. Now you're at the end of life, different task. This time you're writing your kids' kids a letter on what you learned to have a healthy relationship with money. Oh, that's a good one. Money accrues disproportionately to those who are in the top 1% of any, whatever it is they do. Doesn't matter if it's sports, we see that all the time, or business and entrepreneurship. Doesn't mean you're the smartest or best person at what you do. It just means you're the most effective in doing what it is you do. Whereas money will get you happiness to a point. It will not be the be all and end all of things because frankly, you have plenty of cases and an interesting war going on for a telecom giant right now in Canada proving this. The reality is, is that you're put on this earth to basically do something that not only you love, but that you're good at. Find that thing and be the best at it. And if you do that, money will come and you will be fulfilled because that job gave you purpose. You know, I've, I've met you a couple of times and I feel like you're living that advice already. So thank you so much for spending the last hour with me, Jason. I really appreciate this conversation and everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jason as much as I did. Potentially, hopefully, fingers crossed, the banking future is positive if we allow, if we're able to have open banking in our financial lives. As you can hear, I really do think it would help improve our relationships with money as fintech's innovation would take away the small but yet hard to implement tasks and would allow us to focus on the things that really matter. We'll see what the future holds for open banking. Until next time, take care.